Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. A couple weeks ago, we launched into a new sermon series called Asking for a Friend, and we're continuing that series today. And this series, Asking for a Friend, if you hear someone use that phrase, they'll ask a question and they'll end it with, you know, I'm just asking for a friend. And it's a way to kind of distance yourself from the question to say, well, this is someone else's question, and I'm just asking it to save them the embarrassment. And so what we've been doing in the series is we've been diving into some hard topics, sometimes some deep-rooted issues. And these are the kind of topics that might make us a bit uncomfortable to talk about. And we've been taking a, a specific angle with these, and we've been saying, what are the questions that people ask about the church? What are questions that people ask about Christians? And maybe even a little bit kind of digging into some of the stereotypes about faith, about Christianity. And so that's what we've been doing in this series. And so today we're talking about another one of these topics that has the potential to kind of raise some eyebrows and make you feel a bit uncomfortable. And I want to ask you to do something. If you're feeling uncomfortable during this message, I want you to ask this question of yourself and say, why? Why does this make me feel uncomfortable? Why does this get under my skin a little bit? Because today we're talking about this question. What's the deal with Christians and politics? Why does it seem that politics and Christianity have become married or merged in some ways? And what is the scripture, what what does the Bible actually have to teach us about politics? Now, I want to lay some ground rules right off the bat. First of all, I am not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you who I voted for or who I intend to vote for. And also, I'm not even going to mention any names of any political parties, politicians, or candidates. So right off the bat, we're leaving all that aside. Because there's something actually that that our government has done that I think is actually smart. Is our government actually decrees that if churches want to be registered as a charity, you actually have to be nonpartisan. And I think that's a good thing for churches to say that as the church, we are independent of the partisanship that happens in our culture. And so we're going to stick to that today. And we're going to talk about this topic in the way that it relates to Scripture. But you might be wondering right off the bat, you know, why are we giving one of our weeks, one of the times we gather to politics? Why is this important? to talk about politics in the church. And here's a, here's a couple reasons of why we're doing this, why we're talking about this. First off, it's a topic that's not going to go away on its own. Even if you want to ignore politics and just say, you know, any time it comes up on the news, I'm just going to change the channel. I'm just going to try to ignore it. Politics still affects us. Politics still shapes our country, still happens. We can't really get ourselves away from it. And it's a topic that's just not going to go away. But also, something we've seen in recent years is that political views are getting increasingly polarized. The gaps between different positions are getting larger, and there's this growing us-versus-them mentality that's happening through our society, where if you're not in 100% agreement with me, you are now my enemy. And that rhetoric is growing and growing. And we're seeing this because the conversations about politics are getting less tolerant. They're getting more and more inflammatory. The public square that used to be this place of having discourse to share ideas to say what is the best way for us to move forward as a group of people has now become a boxing ring where it's about who can get the best soundbite, who can punch under the belt and knock down their opponent. But lastly, there's this reason, that the political stereotypes about Christians are not beneficial to the church or its mission. Because the church has a purpose and a mission that we're going to talk about today that is so much bigger 
and transcends politics and is so much more important. We need to remember that that is our focus. See, I believe this, and I hope that you believe this too, is that following Jesus is vastly more important than politics. How we treat our faith matters most. Now, if you're here and maybe you're just checking this place out or a friend brought you along and you're like, you know, I don't know where I am on this whole Jesus thing, whether I believe in Jesus or not, that's totally okay. I'm excited and glad that you're here. And I hope that what we talk about will be thought-provoking and will make you maybe consider some of the assumptions that we may have made that all of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, that this will kind of make us question some of those assumptions that we might think are true. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend lots of time in Scripture and looking at this. And we're going to spend some time in the first half of Scripture, which is our Old Testament and our New Testament. But I want to make a little clarification on this that might, will help us understand this. Is that our Bibles are split into the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it would help us and serve us when we try to understand it to recognize them, the Old Testament as the Hebrew covenant and the New Testament as the New Covenant. The word testament actually is better translated to covenant. That this is about the covenants that God made with his people. First the Hebrew covenant, and then when Jesus came, he created the new covenant under Jesus Christ. But we're going to start in the Hebrew scriptures. We're going to start in the old covenant. And there's four main eras of political systems that happened through the Old Testament. And fortunately, we live in a country where none of these are a direct parallel to us right now. In fact, these four eras of different political authorities that happened through the Old Covenant kind of list like this. There's the first one where God just appoints the leader, and we see that with Moses and Joshua leading the Israelites when they left captivity in Egypt and through the Promised Land. And when they entered the Promised Land, there's this era in the book of Judges where God is the king, and he exercises his leadership of the people through their following of the law that was given to Moses when they were still in the promised land, and through the priesthood, through the priests. If you had an issue you know, with your neighbor or you had an issue about something, you came and you brought it to the priests, and they would consult the law, and God was the functional king during that era. But if you've read through the book of Judges, it didn't always work that well. You know, that's the idealized how it should have happened. And so even during the time of Judges, God would raise up these leaders called a judge, and they would lead the people on God's behalf for a time period, for a season, for a situation that was threatening the people. And then after that, the people start asking God, and they ask the prophet Samuel and say, why can't God give us a king so that we can be like the other nations around us? So we move into this era of um, uh, era of kings. And kings were either appointed by God in the case of the first and the second kings, Saul and David. And then after that, there's this family dynasty where like Solomon gets appointed king because he is the son who David chose to be king after him. Or you get a little later into the time period of their history where you see kings get selected by conquest, which literally meant like if you could get enough guys with swords together and you could kill off the king and all his guards and all his family, you could proclaim yourself king. But that also means that then someone else could get enough guys with swords together and they could come and chop off your head and then they would be king. And so we see these three models of leaders being selected through this era of kings. 
And then we get to the last chunk that actually continues for the remainder of the Hebrew scriptures and even up through our New Testament is this time when Israel and Judah get ruled by a foreign nation, first by Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greek, and then Roman rule. And we see that progression happen. So throughout each of these political frameworks, throughout these four that we see in the Old Testament, uh, there's something that is common and central to all four of them, and that's these two things. Throughout each of these political frameworks, the identity of the nation of Israel was based upon their devotion to the law and their possession of the promised land, this possession of this land that God promised to them that they were heading towards when they were in the desert. And so let's look at this first one. And this is, we're going to go back to Exodus to 19, when Moses is meeting with God and God is giving Moses the law that is to shape the identity of the people. And this is what God tells Moses to tell the people. So this is God's voice speaking, saying, Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. God was setting up the Israelites to be this priesthood, that would represent and share who God is with the world. It was not about them just being an isolated nation. The purpose of God selecting the Israelites as his people was for them to reveal God to the world. And then there's the second piece, the possessing of the promised land, because there was this promise that God gave them with this of saying, when you reach this chunk of land, this fertile part of the East Mediterranean, what is now present-day Israel, of saying this is the land that God has promised to his followers. But possessing the land had a special, special kind of relationship to the law because possessing the promised land was confirmation that the Israelites were following God's law. These two concepts are deeply linked all throughout the law, that if the people follow the law, they get to keep the land. Now you might think, wait a second, we just mentioned the fourth way of political leadership was that Israel and Judea got ruled by other kings, by other nations. They lost the land. And we're going to talk about that because this is something that relates to how they viewed their politics. But I want to take us back in the story to before they lost the land. I want to take us back for a moment to Solomon, who was the third king of Israel. This was when Israel was one nation. And Solomon gets to be the king that built the temple. Prior to that, they had this basically a portable temple called the tabernacle that was a tent, essentially, that the Israelites traveled with through the desert. And when they reached Jerusalem, they set up the tent and it became a permanent tent. But eventually, it was time for the tent to become a permanent structure, to become the temple. And so Solomon builds the temple. And right before the temple is dedicated, God meets Solomon one night and he gives this message to Solomon. And so this is found in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. God tells Solomon this. He says, Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. You might be wondering, wait, why is God telling Solomon there will be a time when he will restore the land? Because the Israelites have the land right now. It's theirs. They possess it. This is the confirmation they are following the law. But God says this time is coming. And if we look at the verse before and after this, we see that God is giving this promise and saying that in the future, in the future, there's going to be a time period where the Israelites lose the land. 
But if they do this, if they humble themselves, if they turn back to God, if they seek God's face, their land will be restored. Now this passage gets interesting. Because if we look at our recent history, since about the 1940s was when this passage started getting mentioned in political speeches on both sides of the border, Canada and the U.S., that this passage, 2 Chronicles 7.14, was begun to be used as the thesis statement for a Christian political perspective of saying, if we just turn to God, if we humble ourselves, if we follow his ways, God will hear us, he will restore our land. And so that started in the 40s, and then it kept growing, and in the 70s, both Canadian and American Christians started to claim this promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 in response to the moral issues facing society, of saying, hey, we just need to get our society to follow the law. We need to get our society to be morally good, and then God will heal our land. In fact, when I was researching this, I was surprised at the number of doctoral dissertations where theologians and sociologists and political scientists have examined this passage and how it's been used in politics over, well, since the 70s till now, over the last 50 years. I was, surpri- I was, I was actually quite surprised by the amount of research that has been done into this passage. So we're going to dwell on it for a moment. And if you were here with us last week, we talked about this little concept called Bible Study 101. How do we read Scripture well? How do we make sure that we're understanding God's Word well? And we brought up these two filtering questions that, that serve as a starting point. And the first is this, how did the original audience understand this? And is this a descriptive passage, meaning does it tell us about what happened and something that was an event from the past? Or is it a prescriptive passage, meaning it's like a prescription, it's telling us what we should do and how we should act? So how did the original audience understand this? Well, the original audience was Solomon, and it was a message that Solomon was to relay to the people. Now, Solomon would have understood this, that restore your land, and from reading the verse before and the verse afterwards, Solomon would understand that God was telling Solomon, even then, that in the future, you're going to lose the land. And in fact, what happened after Solomon was he failed to to appoint a successor. And so after Solomon, there was this great kind of political and, well, violent battle to try and decide who would be the next king after Solomon. And in fact, the nation of Israel gets split in half. The northern half keeps the name Israel, and the southern half takes the name Judea. And so then we enter this time period of the divided kingdoms. And during that time period of the divided kingdoms, there was two, basically two nations that both claimed they were God's nations, that were fighting with each other and fighting with the surrounding nations. And it was a time period of, well, if you ever read through Kings, you'll see that at the end of each king's history chunk... It'll say, this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord and the people followed. In fact, in the northern kingdom in Israel, every single king gets declared to be evil, that they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you look at the southern kingdom, only a handful of kings were, got this declaration of saying what they did was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so what happens eventually is that the nation of Assyria attacks Israel, the northern nation, takes over them, kills their king off, and Israel gets conquered by Assyria. And Judea is scared. Judea doesn't know what to do next. And they're wondering, is Assyria coming for us next? 
But what happens then is the kingdom of Babylon starts to grow in power. And the kingdom of Babylon attacks Assyria and takes over Assyria and thus taking over Israel as well. And then the kingdom of Judea is like, well, what are we going to do? We got this giant, powerful nation on our doorstop. They want to take us. And they tried to build some alliances with Egypt and with other nations, but they didn't work out. And so the kingdom of Babylon takes over Judea. And now there is no more autonomous rule of the Israelites. They are a subjected people. And then what happens after that is the kingdom of Persia rises to power. And when Persia takes over the known world, Persia had a different perspective. And Persia allowed a group of Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed when Babylon invaded, to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the city walls, and to plant themselves back in Jerusalem under Persian rule. And so when God gave this message to Solomon, 2 Chronicles 7.14 was a promise to a specific group of people that was fulfilled when these Jewish people got to return after the second exile. So if we say, is this a descriptive or a prescriptive passage? Well, at the moment, for Solomon, it was prescriptive. It was a promise of what was yet to come. But for us, when we read Second Chronicles now, we need to read this as this was a promise that God has already fulfilled. This isn't actually a promise that we get to claim today. Because if we do claim that verse for today, if we say that that verse was meant for us in 2019 in Canada, what it means is that our duty as followers of Christ is to simply create a moral society. But a Christian political perspective needs to be bigger than voting to legislate Christian morals. Now, the reason for that is, should we care about morals? Absolutely. Should we care about fair and just laws? Absolutely. I'm not saying we shouldn't, so please don't misquote me on that. But the purpose of following Jesus is so much bigger than that. And I want to quote a fellow pastor who said this way more eloquently and better than I could. But I agree with this statement completely, and I kind of wish I would have said it this way first, but Kerry said it first. He, he wrote it this way. He said, I'm a pastor. I completely believe that Jesus is not only the way, but that God's way is the best way. When you follow biblical teachings about how to live life, your life simply goes better. It just does. I 100% agree. I do everything personally, I personally can to align my life with the teachings of Scripture, and I'm passionate about helping every follower of Christ do the same. But what's the logic behind judging people who don't follow Jesus for behaving like people who don't follow Jesus? Why would you hold the world to the same standard that you hold the church? Why would we, as followers of Christ, try to control the world, to legislate morality, to try and say, we want to be the ones in power, we want the ones to take over, to force others to make choices that align with our moral beliefs? That is not the purpose of Christianity. So should we care about moral issues? Absolutely, yes. But creating a moral society through political means is not the primary purpose of following Jesus. We need to recognize that caring, creating laws that care for the oppressed, that care for the poor, that care for those who are taken advantage of, that is still deeply important. That is right there with the gospel. 
but it is still something that is considered secondary to the mission that Christ gave the church. And so if we start to swing things to say, well, okay, what, then what is our perspective? What is our purpose? As followers of Christ, what are we supposed to do here on earth? What are we supposed to do? And the, the be- beautiful part of Scripture is that Jesus gives us that commission. Jesus tells us in plain, simple words what we're supposed to do. When he commissioned the church, he gave us our purpose to transform the world by making disciples of all the nations and being his witnesses through the entire world, not just one nation. In fact, in the old covenant, everything was about the one nation and the one land. And when we move to the new covenant, everything becomes about everyone everywhere, that we as the church have the responsibility, the duty, the task of sharing the hope and the message of Jesus with everyone. That is first, that is primary, that is above everything. Because under the Hebrew covenant, again, everything came down to the land. But under the new covenant, everything is about revealing Jesus' transformational love to the whole world. And I'm sorry to say this, but laws don't actually tell the gospel. Having good laws, that can come out of our dedication to the gospel. Saying, we need laws that protect people who are oppressed. Absolutely, that comes out of Jesus' transformational love that we as followers of Christ need to live out. And so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, so what do we actually do with that? How how, how do we actually um, approach this? And it starts with this. The Christian response to the moral and social issues of our world must be motivated and begin with sharing the love of Jesus, not a desire to control. See, this is one of those stereotypes about Christianity, and we we touched on it a bit uh, three, three weeks ago when we started this series, when we talked about why does the world perceive Christians to be angry? Why does the world think that followers of Jesus are just out to get everyone? They're angry. Uh, Maybe their encounters with Christianity have been limited to maybe someone standing on a street corner protesting or shouting with a megaphone. That's not the true essence of what Christianity is. Christianity is not meant to become a ruling authority that controls and dominates the world because guess what? History tells us that when the church gained the political power, we were the ones who abused it the worst. If you look at the last 1,800 years of history, the church actually has the worst track record when we're the ones with political authority. The problem is, is absolute power corrupts absolutely. Even when it was done under the best of intentions, we as the church need to be very careful of aligning ourselves to power because we as the church have a bad track record of it. And why? Because our motivations get flipped. Instead of letting our love for Christ, our love of Christ, the love of Christ that flows through us, that is meant to represent Jesus to the world, instead of that being primary, if our desire for control becomes primary, we will do awful things in the name of Jesus. Things that our grandkids will look back at this time period of history and be like, what were they thinking? We look back at things that the church did even a hundred years ago, and we say, what were they thinking? How could they do that? So we have to ask this. What is a new covenant way? Not a way that's based on the Hebrew covenant. What is a new covenant way to engage with politics? And you know what? We have this amazing story from the life of Paul that tells us this. Now, Paul came after Jesus. He was 
uh, called by God to preach the good news, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the term Gentile just means anyone who wasn't a Jew. So Paul gets chosen to go and spread the message of Jesus to people that the Jewish people considered outside of the law. They considered them heathens. They considered them pagans because they were outside of that covenant that God made with the Israelite people. And so Paul gets chosen by God to preach and plant churches and share the message of Christ to Gentiles. Now, understandably, that gets the established religious order of the day kind of worked up and kind of riled up. And so after Paul has his three big missionary journeys where he goes and plants churches and he preaches about Jesus, he chooses, it's finally time for me to return back to Jerusalem. And so as he comes back to Jerusalem, everyone's kind of warning him, saying, Paul, it's not safe for you there. Paul, you're going to get arrested. Paul, you're going to get beaten. And he goes, I'm going there anyways. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem. And sure enough, the religious leaders of the day incite a riot and claim that Paul was doing things that broke their law and that Paul deserves to die. And this riot forms right outside the temple gates. And the Roman commander, because Israel and this whole area is under Roman rule at the time, the Roman commander of the guard hears about this riot forming. And so he sends his soldiers in to break it up. And they arrest Paul because he's at the center of this. Something's going on. The Roman commander doesn't have a clue what's going on, but he says, there's an issue. This guy's at the middle. I'm going to arrest him. And so he takes Paul, but he allows Paul from the steps of the Roman fortress to address the crowds. And so Paul, standing there in chains, gets to preach the gospel and tell all these people, this is God's plan. That it was always God's plan from the very beginning for the gospel to be preached to people that were considered outside the law of the old covenant. This is the whole plan. This goes all the way back to Moses. This goes all the way back to Abraham, the very beginning of the Hebrew covenant. Paul gets this opportunity to preach. But then the next night, word gets to Paul that there's an assassination attempt that's going to happen. That the next time the Roman commander takes Paul out of the fortress, that he's going to be attacked, and these Jewish leaders have commissioned a group to assassinate Paul. And so the Roman commander says, well, I can't let that happen on my watch. So he sends Paul in the middle of the night with 470 armed Roman soldiers to the city of Caesarea which is to the north and the west of Jerusalem, closer to the Mediterranean coast, because that is where the governor Felix lives. And the governor of Felix is the governor who Rome has appointed to govern that southern area of Judea. Roman commander says, this is above my pay grade. I'm sending you up to the governor. You can deal with the governor. So Paul gets there to the governor, and the governor can't figure out why, what Paul has done to deserve death. He says, you haven't actually broken these laws. And in fact, Felix, because he's under pressure from the religious leaders of the day from Jerusalem, Felix decides to just, let's just keep Paul in prison for as long as I can, and maybe this thing will just blow over. And so he keeps Paul in prison for two years. But Acts tells us that Felix enjoyed going and talking with Paul regularly. Paul and the governor of Rome, from Rome to govern the area became friends during this two years. But Felix got old, and it was time for him to give up his post and get replaced. And so after two years of Paul just being in prison, talking with the governor, writing letters to the churches that we now have in our New Testament, Festus becomes the governor. And Festus walks into this two-year-old situation not knowing what to do. He says, what do I do with this guy, Paul? So he waits a little bit. 
And what happens is the, the area of land north of Judea was now known as Galilee. And King Herod Agrippa II was the puppet king established by Rome to rule that area. So even though he was Jewish and he was considered a king, really he's a puppet king. He's only there because Rome says he can be there. And he is still under duty and under an oath to Rome. And so Agrippa comes down to meet Festus to congratulate him for becoming the governor now. And Festus says to Agrippa, well, what do I do with this guy, Paul? You're Jewish. You understand these people. Let's talk with him together. And so this is what happens. They gather this military ceremony. They come in in all their pomp and splendor of being the two most powerful politicians of the whole area. They come together and they call Paul to come as a speaker to speak to them and say, what are you here for? And so Paul uses this opportunity and he speaks to Festus and Agrippa. And he starts telling them his journey. He says, I was a Jew. I was born and raised a Jew. I was not only a Jew, I was a Pharisee. I was a member of this group that believed that strict obedience to the law would restore everything. They were the group that that would have taken the Second Chronicles 7.14 and said, that's what we have to do, strict observance to the law. And not only that, but Paul, his name was Saul then. And his task given to him by the Pharisees was to go and persecute Christians, to kill them, to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. And one day... Paul tells this story. He says, when I was called Saul and I was on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to me and he blinded me and said, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus calls Paul and says, you will now be my witness to the Gentiles. And so Paul gets to tell this story to Festus and Agrippa, two most powerful politicians in the area. Paul tells this story of how Jesus changed his life. And then he gets to this. He gets to this verse and he says to them, Acts 26, verse 22, he says, but God has protected me right to this present time so that I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and the Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Now King Agrippa takes offense to this. And he interrupts him and he says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? See, Agrippa actually realizes what Paul is doing. Paul is witnessing to them. He is telling them about the love of Jesus. He is telling them about God's plan. And Paul replies, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am except for these chains. Paul has an audience with the two most powerful politicians in the whole area. And what he does is he tells them about the love and the salvation of Jesus Christ. He didn't advocate for Christians to not be persecuted. He didn't advocate for his dismissal, for the charges against him to be dropped. He didn't advocate for better treatment. He didn't advocate for laws to change. He advocated for them to know that God loves them. He advocated for them to know that there is a better way to live your life, and that way is to recognize and put your trust in Jesus Christ. See, this is the principle that Paul teaches us when he stands before the political power of the day. He says, politics will not save the world. Only Jesus can. So we need to say, when we look at politics, are we expecting politics to save the world? 
I mean, the way it looks, politics is more likely to end the world. But only Jesus can save the world. It's only the love and the salvation and the redemptive hope that we have in Jesus Christ that will save and transform the world. Now what happens next in the story with Paul is fascinating too because Paul is a Roman citizen. He is a citizen of the Roman Empire. And so he has the right to plead that his case goes all the way to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. So Paul appeals for his case to be tried to Caesar. Now the reason for this Paul's being a little sneaky, and I like and I respect this about Paul. Because if he appeals to Caesar, that means that Festus and Agrippa have a duty to transport Paul to Rome and guarantee that he gets an audience with Caesar. Do you recognize what Paul's trying to do? Paul wanted to get to Rome because Rome is the most important, most influential city, and the Caesar, the Roman emperor, is the most powerful man in the world. So why does Paul want to get there? So he can tell him the exact same thing. So that he can witness to the Roman emperor and tell him about God's love, about God's plan. That's his purpose. And while he's there, he's going to get to go talk to the Roman church that he's always wanted to go visit. He's always wanted to encourage them. And so the remainder of the book of Acts is Paul being taken by Roman soldiers on Roman money. He doesn't have to spend any of his own money to get to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with this time period where Paul is allowed to live in a rented house. He's not even in prison. He gets put in a rented house with Roman guards there to protect and ensure his safety. And Paul gets to minister to the Roman church and anyone who is willing to come visit him. And that's where the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts is finished writing before Paul actually gets his audience with Caesar. Paul used the political system of the day as an opportunity to share the message of Jesus with one more person. That was his purpose. So what is a Christian perspective on politics? What is a Christian view? What do we do? And here's the first thing. We need to pray for politicians to encounter Jesus' love. Exactly what what Paul did. Not pray that they make laws that we like. We can pray for those things. That's, I'm not saying don't pray for those things, but we need to first pray that politicians themselves would be able to put their trust in Jesus because everyone deserves a chance to know how much God loves them and to know how their lives will change when we choose to put our trust in Jesus. The second Christian responsibility is that we need to represent Christ well when you interact with politicians and government officials. This includes how we talk in political discourse. Christians should be above the vitriol and above the hate and above the the way that politics gets spoken about. Do our words as we interact with things politically represent the love of Jesus? We don't get a pass to say, I get to put my Christianity aside and then I'm going to interact with this political situation in whatever way I want and then say, okay, now I'm going to be a Christian. And we don't get to do that. The way we interact has to be better. And lastly, we need to let love, mercy, and compassion guide our vote. Democracy is not mentioned in the Bible, but I think democracy is the best system of what we've got, and it's what we're under as citizens of this country. So we do have a responsibility to vote, but we need to ask ourselves, what's guiding our vote? Is our vote being guided by the political attack ads? Or is our vote being guided by a desire to share Jesus' love, mercy, and compassion. 
And so here's where I get to drop the difficult question on you. Because each of us has to make that decision for ourselves. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I said that from the beginning. I'm not even going to hint. But each of us has to make that decision for ourselves. Because we are citizens of this country. So we have a responsibility. But I want to end with one last verse. Paul, when he was writing to the Philippian church, one of the letters he wrote when he was under arrest, he said this. He said, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. He says, yes, we're citizens of the country we're in, but we are also citizens of heaven. We need to conduct ourselves in ways that reflect that. Then, Paul says, whether I come to see you again or I only hear about you, he doesn't know if he's going to get released. He doesn't know if he'll ever get to see this church of Philippi again, and he actually doesn't get to see them again. He only gets to hear from them. He says, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, which is fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, which is the gospel. What unites us and holds us together is our love of Christ, is Christ working through us, is wanting to see people come and respond to Christ's love. And we can all vote for different political parties and we can still say, that what binds us together is that we are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. We need to ask ourselves this question when it comes to politics. Which kingdom are we choosing to be a citizen of first? Some of you may hold dual citizenship here, but all of us hold a citizenship in heaven if we've chosen to give our lives to Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we living in a way that represents Jesus' love? Because he is the king that is worthy. He is the king that is pure. He is the king that is not corrupt. He is the king that cares, that weeps with the brokenhearted and celebrates with those who rejoice. I want to encourage you just to reflect on that. What does it mean for us to live as citizens under Christ, our king? So as we head into an election season, as things in the political discourse in our culture ramp up, somehow even higher than it is now. My hope is that we as followers of Christ would remember that our first responsibility, our first mission is to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus, to share his hope and his love. And would that guide us in the political decisions we make? Would that guide us in our vote? Would that guide us in our interactions? Would that transformational love become the first thing that people see when they think about Christians and politics. That is our hope. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, you are our good and gracious king. You are the king who is worthy of our devotion and our praise. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that we are citizens of your kingdom first. And Lord, if there's people here who are on the fence of saying, I don't know about this, Lord, would you reveal your love? Would you reveal your goodness? Would you reveal your graciousness? And would this be an opportunity to choose to take that step to say, yes, we put our trust in you, Jesus. We accept your forgiveness. We accept your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we pray for politicians. We know that that is a difficult role, that role of public service, that everyone that they encounter either hates them or wants something from them. And Lord, I pray 
that you would be orchestrating it so that followers of Jesus, that people would, that people who know you would be around politicians being able to reveal your love, just like we know that everyone deserves the chance to hear about your love and your mercy and your grace and your salvation. So Lord, would you even give us those opportunities to speak truth, to speak love, to speak kindness, And Lord, as a community of faith, would we embody who you are for your glory and your kingdom, not an earthly empire? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, next week we are bringing this series to a close and we're looking at one more of these tough questions. And if you take a look at our social media pages, you'll get a hint about that through the week. So folks, I hope you have an amazing week. We'll see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.